co-lead pastors here. Uh, this summer, uh, we've had the privilege of hearing from a few different people up here, and this morning we are going to get another opportunity to hear from someone. Uh, this is a person I met uh, 18 years ago at Western Washington University. We were both doing a campus ministry internship there, um, and uh, in terms of, uh, how do I say what I want to say? Um, there are few people I have found to be more genuine, few people I have found to be kinder or more loving than this person, not just to the people that he cares uh, in his immediate circles, but to people outside of those circles. I learned uh, what I think true evangelism is from uh, this person, um, and I, I couldn't be more excited to have uh, him up here this morning. Uh, and so if you would welcome Dan Seegers up here. Uh, yeah. Is that, yeah, is that working? Um, there we go. I have very small ears, so this thing will probably fall off my face. Um, I'm nervous, but I'm not going to talk about that. Um, <clears throat> Greg, thanks for your kind words. Um, Greg and I have known each other for a long time. I'm getting emotional just because uh, he's awesome. Um, known him for a while and been in this church for a while. Um, Greg and I were pastors for a number of years, as was I was pastor with my wife. Some people may not know that. She was a pastor for a while. And, um, and it's just sweet to be up here. It's been a long time um, that I've, you know, since I've spoken in front of a group of people, and I figured what better thing to talk about with you guys is politics and religion. <laughs> Let us pray. <laughs> Holy Father, we thank you for this moment this morning, this opportunity this morning to worship you um, and to come together before you. You know our lives intimately, the stresses, the joys. And God, we come before you with all of that. And... Uh, God, we recognize that sometimes our culture and many times our own hearts try to pull us away from you and your heart. Holy Spirit, I ask that you remind us this morning in this refuge of being together and being together with you, that you are a good God. You're perfectly loving, you're just, and you're trustworthy. And as we sang early, earlier, may you be honored and glorified, exalted, and lifted high, and at your feet we lay our life. Holy Spirit, we ask that you teach us today. You're the spirit of truth. Please guide us in our hearts and minds as we consider your words today. Amen. Although uh, talking about politics and religion in America could be interesting, uh, that's not what I'm going to talk about today. Um, instead, I'd like to continue our series in the book of John, by talking about politics and religion during their time. <clears throat> I was a history major in college, <clears throat> and how I ended up as a pastor and now a software developer is a whole new story. But <clears throat> I learned that when you read historical documents, it's really important to 
read the context that these things were written in so that you can gain some understanding. And I don't know about you, but when I hear about Jesus, sometimes I have an image in my head of Jesus walking around, long, flowing hair, with no personality, walking around speaking monotone and very soft-spoken. The, pe- the people around him are enamored with him for some reason, because why wouldn't you be to a non-personality, bland person? And they have the same kind of monotone kind of behavior, and, and it just it looks very bland and boring. And uh, I blame TV and movies mostly, but, uh, but I think it's po- important to talk about these um, misconceptions before we get into the passage that we're looking at today. And some of this is we've already talked about in uh, our series, but I wanted to kind of double down on them. In the first century, the land of the Jews was being occupied by a foreign government, the Romans. Far from a peaceful and uh, loving and kind of, you know, peaceful country, countryside, did you know that there were four military revolts and protests between the Jews and the Romans while Jesus was alive, while he was walking around teaching people, healing people, feeding people, calling people to follow him. These revolts were started because the Jews were oppressed by the Romans, religiously, economically, and socially. For them, the Romans were an irreligious, unclean people. And as a first century Jew would say, they were the Gentiles, the dogs of society, outside of God's blessings. The Gentiles were, de- were to be avoided because there was a deep, deep racial tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Romans allowed the Jews to worship in their temple, kind of. Judaism at the time was basically a state religion. The Romans felt like they had to keep them somewhat happy because they needed their land as a military defense. They needed their agriculture to help feed, uh, feed them. And I want us to really, or what I'm going to do is really focus on this, is that the temple was the central aspect of the life of the Jews. Politically, religiously, everything, their identity was in the temple. That is where God met them. That is where God pronounced forgiveness. That's where God spoke to them. The Romans occupying their land and having a hand into their way of worship was a real threat to the identity of the Jews as the people of God. So that's really different. I just wanted to lay that groundwork and just take take a minute, just take a moment to recognize that God came into that context. God came into a politically and socially charged world. It was the context of the people who heard Jesus' teachings, who liked Jesus, who hated Jesus, and people who wanted to kill Jesus. So why did they not like him? Some of the Jewish religious leaders of the time 
avoided the Romans at all costs because they were unclean. And as, as such, these religious leaders thought it was their role to keep the purity of the Jewish faith alive. So they have this threat from the outside, but then you have this other guy, Jesus, coming in, and he's completely violating their understanding of their, their pure religion. He's healing people on the Sabbath. Um, he's touching unclean people. He's hanging out and eating with sinners. He's, he's healing unclean people. <clears throat> and I can empathize a little bit with this guarded feeling. I don't know about you. Other Jewish leaders were given small pockets of political power by the Romans, which they enjoyed the benefits of, especially financial. And Jesus was a threat to them because they saw him as a threat to their power, their seats of power. And I can identify with being in a position of privilege and wanting to keep it. All in all, the Jews didn't want to lose their country or their temple, and they saw Jesus as a threat to both. I wanted to read a passage out of John eleven forty-seven to 48. Be up here on the back. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And at the point where we are this morning, the contempt for Jesus is coming to a head. And as Greg mentioned last week, Jesus has decided that this was the time that he was going to surrender himself. Historians and theologians call what we're going to be looking at, what Greg started last week, as Jesus' farewell discourse. It was a time for him to pull his closest people in and to share with them what was important. You know, it's kind of your last words. Um, And as I read this passage, and actually I'm not going to read it, Paul, I would like Paul to come up, um, because it's Paul. Yeah. Um, As Paul reads this passage, I want you to, if it helps you to close your eyes and kind of imagine um, the context that we've discussed so far as he reads this passage. Remember the wars, the revolts, fear of losing your country, fear of losing your center of worship, hope for freedom, being oppressed by a foreign, irreligious government, fear of losing your identity as a people. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, 
and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away, and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will, not, I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe me. Believe in me, about righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer, and about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Thanks, Paul. <clears throat> Those are uh, some pretty intense words, especially... Uh, chapter 16, where he's telling them they're going to be persecuted and pushed out of the synagogues. And it would be easy for us to believe that the disciples know what is happening, but they simply don't. The stories of the Gospels make clear that the disciples think that Jesus is some kind of revolutionary, 
a political revolutionary heading in to remove Roman authority violently, if need be. Their hope for freedom and liberation to their religious and social life as the people of God, <clears throat> I'm sorry, their hope is for freedom and liberation from all the oppressions of the Romans. This was their hope. And given their context, what is striking to me is what Jesus doesn't say. I can imagine him saying, I, I just imagine like William Wallace from Braveheart. Remember Israel. Remember the days of our freedom before the Romans. Remember the temple. Of all the allegiances, of all the forms of identity, he could have spoken to them about to prepare them for a revolt. Jesus says, love me and obey my commands. Speak truth in my name, even if it means being killed. And the prince of this world has been judged. And that's what we're going to look at today. The life Jesus was calling the disciples to was much bigger than their fight against Rome. It was much bigger than their nationalism. Much bigger than their temple. And you remember, this temple was hundreds, hundreds of years of their identity was in the temple. The object that the disciples loved was to be for him. Jesus said, On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. <clears throat> Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. There is a fundamental shift in loyalty and a fundamental shift in identity that Jesus is inviting the disciples into. And it starts with identifying with him first and foremost. What Jesus is calling the disciples into makes little sense without the Holy Spirit. Jesus' kingdom is not about the disciples' hope for regaining some kind of political or social authority. If it were, he'd probably be saying things like, don't let them kill me. We're going in. Whatever it takes, we have to overtake the Romans. Jesus is calling the disciples into something different. And it's not from this world. As one theologian wrote, <clears throat> Justin, am I, yeah. That which is only from this world can only imitate the way things are done from within the world. And the key example given by Jesus is that if his kingdom were from this world, his followers would fight to prevent him from being handed over. Jesus is telling the disciples that he is leaving. But the Holy Spirit is the continued presence of Christ to be an advocate for him and his truth and his kingdom. The Holy Spirit, Jesus says, is the spirit of truth. And I wanted to take a little time to talk about this because when we hear the word truth, sometimes we hear arrogance. Sometimes we hear, you know, kind of a, an attempt to 
um, assert ourselves, you know, above other people, kind of a power grab. Uh, I was reading about this, and one historian said, especially in modern society, he says, quote, truth claims have been unmasked as power claims, which has then opened the way for all kinds of spin and smear as the gloves of civilized debate and public discourse come off and all sides try to scratch each other's eyes out with whatever dirty tricks come to hand. The only truth is what comes out of the barrel of a gun or the scabbard of a sword. Instead of using the means of corrupted power, military strength, intellectual prowess, selfishness, Jesus displayed God's kingdom's power in humble obedience to the Father, loving others, being humble, loving enemies, offering forgiveness, and calling others to become like a child, which for me as I was reading this was just remarkable because they live in such a violent place, and you're calling people to become like a child. In speaking truth, all of this, kind of these ways, that is what the disciples are being called to. The disciples are not going to be persecuted or pushed out of the synagogues and killed because they follow this code of ethics or because they follow the teachings of a dead rabbi. They're going to be persecuted by the Romans for saying that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is Kyrios, that he is the Lord. This Greek word, Kyrios, it's a curious word. <laughs> um, Roman emperors used this title, that they were the Lord. There was, you know, emperor worship is pretty common in their day. The disciples going around teaching and saying that Jesus is Kyrios directly implied that Caesar was not. It was a religious and a political statement to the Romans. Jesus' kingdom was much bigger, not from this world, and he operated on completely different principles. And that is why they're going to be persecuted and killed. Speaking this truth was not a grab for political or social power. It was a truth that simply is. The disciples would be persecuted by many of the Jewish leaders of the time because these leaders had already condemned Jesus to die. To continue to believe in him and his truth and what he was saying was just going directly against their authority. This is why the disciples will be pushed out of the synagogues, persecuted and killed. Speaking this truth was not a grab for social or political authority. It was a truth that simply just is. The same Jesus who calls the disciples and us to speak truth also said to these first century Jews who were being oppressed by the Romans, do not Lord yourselves over others like the Romans. Lord their authority over you. You know, with their political might, their military strength. Don't be that way. 
Perhaps this is one reason he called the disciples to love him and obey his commands before telling them that they were going to go out to speak truth. That their anchor in speaking truth was love for him. Ultimately, speaking truth has nothing to do with our authority, our might, our intellect, our political stances, or our strength, but everything to do with the authority of the Holy Spirit speaking through us. With a new loyalty to Jesus and his ways, our thinking, behaving, and speaking about who Jesus is must be subservient to Jesus' character and his ways, no matter what our political stance or our moral stance on social issues. The spirit of truth is not an advocate for our cause. The spirit of truth is an advocate for him, for his authority. The Holy Spirit invites us to choose to believe that Jesus is who he says he is and to believe in his authority. We can speak the truth of who Jesus is with confident humility. And I know that sounds like an oxymoron. That's right. That's the word, right? Oxymoron. And we can do this because Jesus says he has defeated the prince of this world. Jesus' truth and authority now lives and breathes in history, in our physical world, by his spirit. His authority is not what the disciples or maybe us, wanted. It wasn't the military might. It wasn't the strength to come in and overthrow. But it was the authority of Christ to speak and live his truth with confident humility. Last week, Greg shared where John wrote, Knowing that all things were under his authority and had been given to him by the Father, Jesus became a servant and washed his disciples' feet. We may read that and think, eh, no big deal. But, as Greg talked about last week, given their context, that was huge. Jesus was confident in who he was and to whom he was going, so he humbled himself to serve. And this made me wonder what confidence may look like today. And we're in Seattle, so I can say this. Um made me think of Bill Gates. I thought, man, if you had all that money, just go do whatever you want. There's just utter confidence. You don't have to worry about anything. He goes to Africa. He helps researchers. He goes and speaks about all kinds of, like, issues, health issues, social justice, And he doesn't have to worry about it. He's just kind of carefree, you know? And when you have the resources you need, you can do that. Jesus said that the prince of this world had no hold over him and that the prince of this world now stands condemned. This was Jesus' confidence. He had all the authority he needed. And instead of using that authority the way that the devil may use it. Jesus overtook the devil by serving the Father perfectly, serving others, doing everything the Father commanded him, as he said in this passage, 
He's healed people, forgiven people, called people to a new allegiance. He's introduced a new kingdom that's about knowing the Father, extending mercy, extending justice, caring for the poor, the outcast, loving your neighbor, loving your enemies. And ultimately, what Jesus did is he redefined what power really is. Everything is under his feet. So, when he says he's giving us the spirit to speak truth, we can speak in that confidence. Not the type of arrogant confidence that, you know, we may be accustomed to in our own lives or other people's lives but the confidence of Christ that we can speak in love, humility, kindness, and encourage. So, in conclusion, how we allow our life to be defined is a choice. We can choose to live in a world defined only by what we can see and touch, or we can allow it to be defined differently to be defined how Jesus is describing it. Some think that the latter is pretty stupid, kind of foolish. But in my life, in interactions with others, it's been the only way that I can make sense of justice, providing justice without being unjust, being consistent and being humble, forgiving and caring to one another, even when I think people are against me. And to be this way is not natural. I've heard a friend of mine say it's a fairy tale. It's not based in reality. But in my mind, depends on how you define your reality or how you allow your reality to be defined. For them and for us, Jesus' kingdom has broken into our politically charged and broken world. And in the process, he's defeated the devil. The devil has tried to usurp God's authority in our lives. We have followed the devil's seduction of building social, political, religious systems that oppress and dehumanize people. We have followed personally these seductions of greed, lust, lies, racism, and anger in our own lives. The devil speaks all of these seductive lies, and in John, we see that the biggest lie of all is that Jesus is not who he really is. We've fallen right into the traps at some point in our lives, and this is why we need to be cleaned, as Greg talked about last week. We are dirty, we are broken, and we need to be healed. Jesus is inviting us to be forgiven so we can know the Father, so that we can be loving, so that we can be humble and speak truth graciously. Precisely because there is a kingdom that, though not physically seen, it is very much a reality. And this morning, if you find yourself wanting to be forgiven and to be a part of this kingdom, I invite you to talk to Jesus about it and talk to someone here, talk to a friend. A couple of uh, closing thoughts and questions before we finish and go into worship. I wanted to ask um, for you to write, we have these little cards um, you can write on in in the bulletin. Um, If you want to pull those out, or I I journal on my phone during sermons, and I know people think that I'm probably texting or something, but 
That's just where my journal is. But um, if you want to write in your journal or your iPad or Surface or whatever. Um, I did say Surface. Yeah. Um, uh, so the first one is write down one or two words that describe what your thoughts or feelings are concerning what we've just discussed. <clears throat> this next question is its kind of a deep question. And I know that we're sitting in a church, and I know that it's easy, especially for people that go to church or have been going to church for a long time. When you hear a question like this, it's like, Jesus, you know. Um, but I, I want us to take time and to seriously consider that. Where's your identity? And I want to throw out some examples. Is it being a Republican? Is it being a Democrat or a Libertarian? Is it being an American? Is it in religious fundamentalism? Is it rooted in your sexuality? Your success in your career? How much money you have or don't have? Your gender? Your race? Those are some things that we can think about. Um, and I wanted to say a couple of things very quickly. Um, just as not questions of necessarily right about right now but um one is the advocate the holy spirit is an advocate for jesus to the world but jesus said he was also an advocate to the disciples and one of the things that i was struck with is that um the holy spirit is needs to be that advocate for jesus to even our own hearts i know that there are times when i get into conversations that whether i say it out loud or not I can have this attitude of like, like thinking the person I'm talking to is dumb, calling into question their you know, intellectual capacity, um, haughtiness. I can have a lack of empathy or understanding. And it's all an attempt to just assert myself over them. And I think it's times like that that we need the advocate to speak to our hearts. That truth does not look like that. Um, the other thing is that when we do speak truth, what does it center on? Is it allegiance to a new love for Christ and his kingdom? Or is it just about an argument, you know, about a social issue going on? Now, I'm not saying that the social issues <clears throat> that we discuss and debate with our friends and family are not important. They are but if that's all we're talking about, we're missing the point. A quote I read a few years ago that I think is very powerful. And uh, you want to put that on there, Justin? Sorry. Calling people to follow Jesus without social work is deficient. Social work without calling people to Jesus is impotent. We need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Speaking kindly about the issues in our day is not enough. We are called to speak the truth of Christ kindly. We cannot do this on our own, especially when things are difficult. I'm just going to pray and we can worship.
Father, there's a lot of stuff going on in these passages. Um, so much more that we could talk about and more that could fill up a lot of time. Um, Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would root whatever you want in our hearts now and, and, and let those seeds uh, grow and flourish in our hearts and our minds. God, forgive us when we have chosen to choose a side that's not ultimately with you and allegiance to you. Forgive us when we've taken on the attitudes and the behaviors of the world. God, wash us clean. Help us, help us, God, to walk the way that you've called us to walk. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.